You're listening to the Benton Heights Presbyterian Church Podcast. We hope this message brings you encouragement and helps to build your faith in Jesus. We're glad you're here to listen to this message from Pastor Paul. We are in the Gospel of John, and we will be for most of this year. And we're going to start our reading in just a second from John chapter 3 at verse 22, where people are coming to Jesus. These people are moral, they're uh, spiritual, they're religious, but they don't know Jesus. So it just goes to show you that people can be moral, but they still need Jesus. People can be spiritual, but they still need Jesus. People can be religious, but they still need Jesus Christ. And in our text, we're going to see some of the earliest days of Jesus' ministry. Today, Christianity is the biggest movement in the history of the world. A few billion people alive on earth claim to be his followers and worshipers. Christianity has spread to more nations, impacted more lives, been the longest lasting, greatest ministry or movement of any kind in the history of the world. And today we're going to go back and see some of Jesus' beginnings to his ministry. He had such a small band of disciples. He's beginning his ministry. It's just a few months old when we read this. This is from John chapter 3, verse 22. After this, Jesus and his disciples went went out into the Judean countryside where he spent some time with them and baptized. This is something we're also going to talk about. We're going to talk about baptism more of in just a second. The next verse starts this way. Now, John, this is John the Baptist, Jesus' cousin. John, if you will remember, is a name that is used of several men in the New Testament. The author of the gospel we're studying, his name is John. And right now, that John is talking about another John. We know him as John the Baptist or John the Baptizer. Here's what's happening. His ministry started before Jesus' ministry. So that was according to God's plan. It was prophesied that John the Baptist would prepare the way for Jesus. So his ministry was well in place. It was well established, well known. His cousin Jesus is just now starting his ministry. It's not yet underway. So at this point, John's ministry is well known. Jesus' ministry is relatively unknown, and we get the rest of this text. Now John was also baptizing at Anon near Salim because there was plenty of water and people were coming and being baptized. This was before John was put in prison. You may be surprised to learn that John the Baptist's public ministry lasted less than a year. He was ultimately taken into prison, and eventually beheaded. At this point, of course, he is alive, and he and Jesus are preaching and and engaged in their ministries. Part of that, as we've just learned, as we call him John the Baptist because baptism is what we associate with him. What baptism is all about is that it shows externally what God has been up to internally in a person's life. 
The Bible says repeatedly, and both John the Baptist and Jesus get in on this act when they tell people to repent and be baptized. Repentance is something that happens internally. Baptism is something that happens externally. Repentance is the acknowledgement that I am not the highest authority in my life. Ultimately, someone else is in charge. And it's about a change of ownership. It's about a change of authority. Some of you may have issues with authority and will not submit to it. You will not recognize or acknowledge any authority. But to be a Christian, you have to acknowledge that God is in authority. You're not. That he has charge over your life. You do not. And ultimately, your allegiance is to him. That's what repentance means. It's an internal, emotional, mental, spiritual transformation. It's saying, I believe in Jesus. Jesus is the authority. Jesus is the one I submit to. Jesus is the one I surrender to. Jesus is the one I follow. Jesus is the one I want to be with. It's saying, I want to walk away from my old way of life and walk with Jesus into new life. Repentance is internal. Baptism is external. It is the outward showing of something that God has already done in you. In the same way, this is a ring that shows that Lori and I are married. She's been blessed for 38 years. (laughs) If you don't believe me, ask me. I'll tell you again. She heard that at the early service. She was fine with it. So don't say any more. When Lori and I were married, we made a covenant. It was a commitment between ourselves and God. It involved our minds, our hearts, our souls. And these rings on our fingers are outward symbols of that commitment to a covenant. Baptism is much like that. Once you commit yourself to Jesus internally, there is an external demonstration of that devotion. That's what baptism is. And the water is important because just as water cleanses us from filth, Jesus cleanses us from sin. Now, the issue of baptism has been, has been a, a topic of debate throughout Christian history, meaning the method or the mode of baptism. We in our church typically do what some might call sprinkling. It's a little more than that. I'll use a handful of water and it's pouring over someone. But there are those who prefer, and there's nothing wrong with this, but some even insist that it's got to be by full immersion. I think many of you would not choose that path of baptism with me as your pastor because you'd be afraid that I would all of a sudden start talking really slow while I'm holding you under. (laughs) In the name of the Father and but I do have a funny story to tell that illustrates that even those who insist on full immersion give allowance for some leeway. The brother of a friend of ours owned some lakefront property in Tennessee. And his around that whole lake was about the only one, because he was a permanent resident at the lake, that kept it clean, accessible. You could just go right from the shore right into the water without... Yeah, the things attacking you. 
And a local church desiring to use that lake for several baptisms asked the gentleman, hey, can we use the entrance from your property to do the baptisms? He was readily agreed. He said, yeah, that's fine. And the day came, he, <laughs> he was so curious and he watched from his deck. He just wanted to see the proceedings. The minister is out in water about waist deep and standing before him is a line of folks ready to be baptized. And they're also out in the water. About the fourth person in has just been noticing one after another come to the minister the minister asks a question about their faith and then all of a sudden this person sees the minister just holding them underwater for what must have seemed like a really long time to this guy and his time was getting closer and closer to being his turn and the anxiety was too much and he turned when it was about to be grabbed by the minister. He turned and he started running toward the shore. Not to miss the opportunity, the minister then was seen running after him <laughs> with handfuls of water splashing, going, God will understand, God will understand. <laughs> Let me say this. Baptism shows what it means to be a Christian. It's you identifying with the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus so that when Jesus died, your old life was buried. Who you were, what you thought, what you did, dead, buried. You leave that behind, and now you have a new life with new power as you walk with a resurrected Jesus. Some of you are trying to fix your life. You need to bury it. Some of you are trying to hide your life. You need to bury it. Some of you are trying to manage your life. You need to bring your life and your sins to Jesus. That's exactly what Jesus' ministry is all about. John now goes to the next two verses. An argument developed between some of John's disciples and a certain Jew over the matter of ceremonial washing. They came to John and said to him, Rabbi... That man who was with you on the other side of the Jordan, the one you testified about, they're talking about Jesus, look, he is baptizing and everyone is going to him. Uh, John, your cousin, he's starting to, to trend on Twitter. He's getting more people to sign up for his newsletter than we ever thought. The ones that were in our ministry are now going to him. John, our revenue is decreasing. Our standing within the community is decreasing. You need to do something about Jesus. He's a problem. To this, John replied, a person can receive only what is given them from heaven. You yourselves can testify that I said, I am not the Messiah, but am sent ahead of him. The bride belongs to the bridegroom. The friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. That joy is mine and it is now complete. He must become greater. I must become less. Here's what John is saying. You know what? If you show up at a wedding and the bride and groom are shoved off to the side because one of the groomsmen has made it all about himself, 
That's wrong. Jesus is the groom. The bride, well, that's the church. And John is like a good best man who, after setting Jesus up, steps out of the way. John's saying, my job was to help Jesus get to the bride. John's done his job. And what he's displaying is humility. You see, John's ministry had already started. And now his people are Jesus' people. Every minister, every church should have that same heart. Anyone who is ours is really Jesus's. This is all about John's humility. Humility, by the way, literally means to know your place. John knows his place is to be secondary to Jesus. Let me share with you three things that humility produces. Number one, humility produces contentment, not entitlement. Here's how John said it. A person can receive only what is given them from heaven. That is contentment, not entitlement. Entitlement is, I deserve more. I should have more. Contentment is the result of humility. Entitlement is the result of pride. Let's be honest. We all struggle with contentment and humility. So let me ask, how much is enough? How much money is enough? How much food is enough? How much praise is enough? How much power is enough? At what point do you say thank you instead of I need more? John says everything we have comes from heaven. Jesus' brother James says the same thing in his letter. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights. So number one, humility produces contentment, not entitlement. Number two, humility will produce joy, not jealousy. Here's what John says. That joy is mine and is now complete. How many of you in your organization, your business, your ministry, if it were on a decline, people were going elsewhere, your revenue was going down, would not buy a cake and celebrate? John is celebrating. He says, my joy is complete. You know what? Jesus is launching his ministry and I am rejoicing. Can we just admit we all struggle with pride? I mean, none of us can say, I used to have a problem with pride. (laughs) Not anymore. I overcame that. And to show how much I've overcome it, I created a website dedicated to my humility. And I'm really proud of that. What's happening here is that some of John's leaders are jealous. John himself is joyful. And if you find yourself jealous of others, then there's something amiss in your soul. And number three, ultimately humility allows us to constantly do battle against pride. Hear again what John says. He must become greater. I must become less. Jesus must increase. I must decrease. Notice John doesn't say, I was here first. These people I gathered, 
This is the money I raised. This was the ministry I launched. He says, I decrease. So he increases. If you and I would pursue this attitude in relationship with Jesus, we would see a profound healing at the level of the soul. Jesus, what would make you famous? Jesus, what would make you joyful? What do you want? Jesus, how can I see you for who you truly are? How do I decrease and stop making myself the center and let you increase because you truly alone are the center? I mean, how many of you are are leaders, coaches, parents, business leaders? Almost every one of us leads somebody. The culture of that which you lead consists of two things, what you teach and what you tolerate. What happens is that in some of these leaders of John, now he's teaching humility, but they come at him being proud, not humble. And if John were to tolerate that attitude, then it would negatively impact his ministry and the culture that he's trying to create. Let me give you an example. Let's say you have two kids and you're working hard on teaching them how to behave. But one of them rebels, doesn't behave. and You don't do anything about it. What is that teaching the other kid? It's okay to rebel. You see exceptions to the rule reveals that there really are no rules. Maybe you've seen this in business. I'm going to give you just an extreme example. Somebody comes to you in administration in your business and says, okay, everybody needs to know the employee manual. Except for Bob. He gets to write his own. He's such a piece of work, we let Bob do and say whatever he wants to. Pretty soon the culture is what you tolerate. It's no longer what you teach. It's what you tolerate. One of the most important things a leader does is to set the culture by what they teach and what they tolerate. Jesus, I mean, John teaches humility. Yet some of the leaders are being proud. And if John tolerates that, it's going to become a sick culture. So he has to correct it. We're humble, not proud. We celebrate, not criticize. We don't need an attitude of entitlement. Maybe we did have this much, and now we've got this much. We only have whatever God decided he would give us, and we need to say thank you and do the best with the opportunity he provides. Let me say this as well. What about in our relationships? How are Jesus and John and some of John's leaders in relationship Well, we see both humility and pride in practice here. Here's why I want to talk about relationships. Because if in a marriage there are two proud people, it's always going to be a head-on collision. It's going to be butting heads. I've been doing this for a while. I don't see very many battles over two humble people. Relationship problems often start with pride. Two proud people end up in a competitive relationship. Well, I'm smarter than you. Well, I'm better than you are. Well, I win, you lose every time. A lot of conflict, butting heads over and over. Maybe for some of you, I just explained your marriage. 
here's the healing aspect. You're both wrong. Two proud people cannot have a healthy relationship. Okay, well, what about if one's proud and one's humble? Well, then that typically describes an abusive relationship. That means one is, uh, is over the other. One is domineering and overbearing, and the other one has to submit and yield. And I'm always going to win. You're always going to lose. I always get my way. You never get your way. A healthy relationship is only possible when there are two humble people. And what I mean by that are two people pursuing humility through the power of the Holy Spirit. That's a healthy relationship. I mean, think about between Jesus and John. Into which category do they fit? Are they both proud people? No. Is one proud and one humble? No. They are both humble. That does not mean weak. You get that. John has leaders come and they have pride in what they're saying and what they're thinking. And John has to correct that. And now we want to pivot to life with Jesus. The one who comes from above is above all. The one who is from the earth belongs to the earth and speaks as one from the earth. That's God's kingdom versus our culture. That verse says, the one who comes from heaven is above all. That's Jesus. Keeps going. Next few verses. The one, um, he testifies to what he has seen and heard, but no one accepts his testimony. Whoever has accepted it has certified that God is truthful. For the one whom God has sent speaks the words of God, for God gives the Spirit without limit. The Father loves the Son and has placed everything in his hands. Jesus comes to bring the kingdom of God. Jesus comes to embody the kingdom because he is the king of the kingdom. And what we are taught here is that there are really only two ways to live, kingdom down or culture up. The problem, our problem, is that far too often, far too long, we are trying to pull culture up into our lives and let it dictate what our lives look like instead of going after kingdom values and pulling those down into our lives. We don't need to settle anymore. You see, the problem with people who are engaged solely with the culture is they won't stop and pray, thy will be done. People who are solely engaged with the culture won't open the Bible and adhere its teachings. People who are solely engaged with the culture pursue pride, not humility, make themselves the center of their life and leave no room for Jesus. The kingdom of God values Humility, not pride. It honors the word of God, not the words and thoughts of mere men. It is in obedience to God, not in serving of self. It is seeking to love and serve graciously, generously, without taking and, and fighting and being arrogant and selfish. We need to understand as a people of God, this earth may be our residence, but our citizenship is in the kingdom of God. And that's why it matters. How many of you are just sick of the options that the culture gives? 
It's because the culture, our culture is, is natural. It's, it's of the earth. It's carnal. It's what sinners do who only think of themselves. So we started with baptism. It's about repenting of sin and leaving our lives in Jesus' hands. Then we moved on to talk about humility versus pride and then to bring in kingdom values in every aspect of our lives, in our relationships, our work, our financial decisions. Think about it all. And then the last point is that ultimately all of this culminates in eternity. John 3, 36. Whoever believes in the Son, that is Jesus, has eternal life. Eternal life is not something that starts the day you die. Eternal life starts the day you meet Jesus. Sometimes we tell people, receive Jesus, and when you die, you get to go to heaven. Is that true? Yes. But it's far better than that. Eternal life begins the day you meet Jesus. And life with Jesus now saves me from myself. Life with Jesus now changes how I think. It changes what I desire. There is not one day with Jesus that I regret that I've been with him. There isn't one day of my life that would have been better if Jesus had not been in it. Here's what I'm saying. Every day with Jesus is a good day. It doesn't mean it's an easy day. But it's a far better day than that day being without Jesus. And God's people know that and God's people feel that. So whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. But whoever rejects the Son, whoever rejects Jesus, will not see life. For God's wrath remains on them. Here's what you need to know. The wrath of God is a mega theme in your Bible. When talking about God's attributes, the most commonly mentioned ones are God's holiness, God's goodness, God's purity. God is holy, we are unholy. God is good, we are bad. God is light, we are darkness. God's wrath comes because of his justice. And you know what that is? That's the absence of his love and grace and mercy. You see, you and I declare war on God through sin, rebellion, folly, selfishness, stubbornness, self-righteousness, and the wrath of God remains on those who reject Jesus. In the Old Testament alone, using some 20 different expressions on about 600 occasions, it mentions the wrath of God. And for anyone who thinks, God doesn't mean anything to me. Look, I do what I want. God doesn't do anything about it. Maybe there is no God. Maybe God doesn't care. Maybe I'm an exception to the rule. Let me be clear because the Bible is clear. You are not getting away with anything. Romans 1.18. The wrath of God is not just an Old Testament idea. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppressed the truth by their wickedness. Notice God doesn't say, I'm going to stop you. He lets you do it. He lets you do you. 
But all that is doing is storing up wrath for the day. That's Romans 2.5, if you want to look that up. Somebody might come back at that and say, okay, well, I, I thought God was love. He is. He loves you. But at the same time, God loves his glory and his holiness and his justice and his kingdom and his people. Are you one of his people? Well, I've got a question for you then. How can a loving God pour out his wrath on people? Here's a better question. How can a loving God pour out his wrath on his son? You see, God isn't going to do anything to you that he hasn't already done to Jesus. So here's the thing. God doesn't want eternity without you. To be a Christian means to be saved. Saved for whom? God. Saved by whom? God. My friends, you've only got two options. I'll make this as painfully clear as I can. The most important decision you'll ever make is what you think about Jesus. The most important decision about you is who he is to you. You have two choices. You go to hell or you go to Jesus. What about reincarnation? I heard that was a thing. Hebrews 9, 27, just as people are destined to die once and after that to face judgment. False religions declare there is reincarnation. There is no reincarnation. Well, doesn't everybody get saved? Daniel 12, 2. Multitudes who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake, some to everlasting life, others to shame and everlasting contempt. Well, I hear good people go to heaven. Well, there was only one. His name is Jesus. But for the rest of us, we're going to need him to take us with him because we're not going to go there without him. So I'm inviting you to Jesus. He is our only hope. One last verse. The Apostle Paul writes to the Thessalonians, telling us to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead. He even gives his name, Jesus. And here's what he does. He rescues us from the coming wrath. Jesus rescues us. How does he do it? Well, first, he leaves glory and comes down in humility that God becomes a man and he lives the only sinless life. And yet, he goes through betrayal, rejection, arrest, trial, flogging with a whip over and over, and is crucified on a cross, why would he go through that? So that you would not have to face God's wrath. Because he loves you, and he's got life for you, and he wants you to experience eternal life now and forever. If you've never surrendered your life to Jesus, why not now? Don't leave here today until you've wrestled with who Jesus is. Do you know that he died in your place for your sins? And he wants you to give him your sin. 
so that he can give you his mercy and grace and forgiveness and holiness and righteousness. We hope you enjoyed the message. You can connect with us on Instagram, Facebook, our website, bhprez.org, and subscribe to our YouTube channel to stay up to date on all our latest content.